0: at the city last week, we saw, We said that we were going to get to some of the details of the book of, uh, or the city of Ephesus this week, uh, and to to kind of give you um, a little bit of the setting, in this time, the city of Ephesus is the capital of this region, of this province. Um, Ephesus is located in modern-day Turkey, and this was a commercial center, uh, but also uh, a, a huge city, philosophically dealing with uh, with all sorts of um, religious. It's a religious center of sorts as well. Uh, this was huge for trade. Uh, a real hub in the city. It was the fourth largest city uh, in the Roman Empire, and it was located uh, strategically on. Uh, main land routes as well as sea routes having different ports. And Ephesus, they thought they were so epic. They thought they were so amazing that they cons- they called themselves, uh, they were the self-proclaimed first and greatest metropolis of Asia. They were all, all about themselves. Uh, and here in the city of Ephesus uh, was the temple of Artemis. This was uh, the main goddess that they worshipped. The temple was outside of the city walls, but it was something that uh, was known throughout the world. Uh, Even today, uh, it is called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's uh, about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens and was decorated inside with uh, tons of art from the greatest painters and sculptors. Of that time, and so, huge spot that was super religious. Uh, uh, there was a ton of commercial activity, huge for uh, financial prospects and business. And so that's kind of the the atmosphere as we make our way into the text this morning. So here's what happens: Paul picks up uh, after preaching the gospel to these men. They become Christians. They come to faith in Christ. They're baptized. And now he goes to his regular spot, we're told, the synagogue. He entered the synagogue, verse 8, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul, he takes off, or excuse me, he takes up where he left off on his previous visit to Ephesus. We see in Ephesus. Ephes- or in Acts chapter 18, verse 19, he's there for a short while, and they beg him to stay, and he's like, no, I got to get out of here. Uh, and now he's back. He goes back to those same people who were begging him to stay a little bit longer, uh, and he is there, <coughs> this time not for a short while, but we're told a time frame, for three months. Now, this is a longer time that he has spent uh, in uh, most synagogues, because usually he gets kicked out pretty quickly. Uh, but here, he has much time in this synagogue and he begins to uh, proclaim the gospel. He preaches boldly, we are told. He uh, reasons and persuades them about the kingdom of God. He argues from the scriptures to this specific group of people, showing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the law, that he, in Christ, is all that they have been searching for, and he's been doing this for three months. He begins to gain such uh, a following, uh, and things are going so well for him uh, that you can't help but see that he's going to run into trouble and opposition soon. Uh, And and that's exactly what happens here. He ends up having to make a change. Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, Speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Ultimately, opposition arises. Paul enjoys a short period of time in which he is proclaiming the gospel freely and openly. He has a wonderful audience and hearing in this synagogue. He's springboarding off of the history that these Jews share. And now uh, he's coming to a place where he, he's being so effective that those Jews who are resistant, who are acting in unbelief, they begin Uh, to oppose him more directly. We're told that some become stubborn and that they continue in unbelief. They give him a hearing for a time, but ultimately shut Paul down. And not only that, but they speak evil of those who are Christians. Paul describes them as of the way. We've seen uh, several times throughout scripture that this is the way that uh, Christians are described, the way of Jesus. They're called the people of the way. And there are those who are speaking against Christians, against their action, and they are putting them down publicly. They are speaking against their character uh, before the congregation. there in the synagogue. And because of this, uh, Paul sees what's happening. Paul sees the experience that uh, that these who are opposing the, the Christians and the influence that they're gaining, and so he uh, continues in the synagogue just long enough until this begins to arise, and then he makes a change. We're told uh, that he withdraws from them. He takes the disciples with him and reasons now daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, this is uh, this place called the hall of Tyrannus, or maybe in your translation it might be called the school of Tyrannus. We don't really know if if uh, Tyrannus was. Pretty, pretty common name. So this guy could have been just the person who owned the the building, or he could have been uh, a philosopher. It seems like those uh, translators who have called it the School of, Tran- of Tyrannus have made that choice that they believe this to be a philosophical school. And so Paul uses this venue when this school is not in session, uh, perhaps even in breaks of the day. Many commentators and scholars believe that Paul used this um, this school specifically from 11 to 4 p.m. because apparently that's not school time uh, in the Hall of Tyrannus, which seems like prime school time for us. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, that was around the time when Paul would use it. The school would start earlier in the day. Paul would take up around 11 and go until 4, and then the school of Tyrannus would resume later in the evening. And so Paul found these little slots in the middle of the day, and he used this venue, this facility, uh, to teach, to proclaim the gospel. We're told another time frame. Here, in this spot, verse 10 tells us that this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's what Paul did. For two years, he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now this seemed like something that initially was turning out to not be so great because he had a great hearing, he had a great opportunity in the synagogue, he was meeting there for three months, those who were, he shared a background with, they were able to hear his arguments. But now we've seen that even though he was forced out of there, the Lord opens a new door for him, gives him a new spot to be in, and he's in the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, he's here for two years, a greater time with greater opportunity. More people could come and go uh, throughout the day. They had easier access into the Hall of Tyrannus, and it was open to others who weren't Jews. And so he had a greater hearing, a greater opportunity to proclaim the gospel, And this happened every single day, continued daily for two years. He had a huge opportunity, and many people had the opportunity to engage with Paul and the teachings of Jesus. And so this location, it actually served the gospel uh, in a better way. Not only did it create a, a lower barrier for those folks to come in who weren't possibly welcome in the same way in the synagogue, But also, it's being held in this place that was likely a philosophical school. So people were willing to come into this place. There was a comfort level with the general public about what this place existed for. And so they were more likely to engage in that that atmosphere, in that arena. They were already prepared. That's what this exists for. Here's somebody else who's just teaching. We are going to come in and hear what this person might say. Now, Paul did this daily for two years, and the result we're finding here is that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the result of Paul's work. Because he took advantage of the opportunities that were in front of him, because he was faithful day after day, and because the Lord did his work, the gospel spread. There's widespread evangelistic activity that happens as the result of Paul's ministry here in Ephesus. When it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Greeks, they're not using hyperbole. They're really saying like the impact was worldwide. What Paul started here in this small school had ramifications to the outer parts of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus told them that they should do, right? To make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the earth. Just go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel. It starts in one spot, and it echoes out from there. This is one of the things that I appreciate most (coughs) about being in Berkeley. Right, We're a small city, small percentage, small group of Christians. But the people who come out of this city will have had opportunity to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. You rub elbows with these folks in classes. The people that you know will go on to lead companies. You yourself might go on to lead companies and perhaps governments. And what happens here? in this time, in this church, will cause ripples throughout the world and people will come to faith because of this small work that we've been faithful with here. As we see Jesus together, as we gaze upon him and we stand in awe of Jesus, that will carry on. And I know many of you have had conversations with friends who just can't figure out like the decisions you're making and the way that you live your life because they see the way that you prioritize Christ in your life, the way that you live according to his word, his character. And because of that, it reflects in their life, and they they see what's happening. And so in the same way, the Lord is ri- raising you up and sending you out to go and make disciples, to go and impact the world in a way that you Probably don't know will happen we're after this we're about to head out to um, a conference that we've been going to for a number of years with a bunch of church planters, people who are doing similar things that we've done, and as we've met people over the years, some people have just started churches uh, you know. Three or four years ago. Some people have been planted churches about 10 years ago. And when you go to these things, you kind of hear the different stories and the backgrounds of people who are sharing their uh, situations. Yeah, you know, we started this way. And, you know, right now we've got like a couple families who want to start the church with us and be a part of it. You know, and they're in different or they're in different um states and different counties and different experiences we've got friends who are in uh in louisiana there's two different uh pastors that i know who are in louisiana and they're starting church had started churches and the lord's blessing those works and i have a friend who he's preached here he's in walnut creek and uh the lord he started a church with a bunch of families and that's going great And when you come together in these conferences, everyone kind of wants to get an update, like, how's it going? You know, what's happening? And typically the way that it happens, uh, you know, you begin to start a church and people meet Jesus and they make disciples. And then your church begins to grow in number. Now, we're the complete opposite because of our area. But because what we're also doing here is we're not creating a service. Uh, People aren't moving here. They're moving out of here. You land here for a short period of time and then you're out. We're in, a, we're in a complete opposite situation, but I am just so thankful for the work that the Lord is doing here. I take so much, uh, so much pride in the growth and maturity that we've seen in your lives because I know that you're going to go out and impact the world in just crazy ways that we will not see now. We will not see When I come to the conferences with these other guys, you know, they're showing me, like, pictures of their church that, like, looks different, like, literally, like, it's, like, this big, and then it's this big, and then it's this big, and then it's, like, way big, and then they're, like, we have, like, four services, and I'm, like, okay, cool, (laughs) you know, like, that's great, and we don't have something like that to show, and that doesn't trip me out at all, I'm not worried about that, you guys know, like, I have zero care about how many people are here on a Sunday or not the only thing that makes a difference is like how much coffee we make do we make like a lot or a little bit less but other than that like it doesn't matter to me what matters to me is what happens in eternity how effective are you out in the streets well, how effective are you when we see Jesus face to face we will see the effectiveness and the ripple that you created for Christ and i'm telling you the way that i've seen you guys grow and the track that you're on I'm praying that we just have like this huge wake from our church that's just like, like we, you know, we're just thrashing about. It's massive. I'm so excited to see what, what that's like. It's going to be great. This is what Paul's getting at here. When he's working uh, in this group he sees widespread evangelistic opportunity. Now, why do we see the word going to all of Asia? Well, Paul's here for two years. He's not going anywhere. He's stuck. So it's not Paul's work that accomplished the gospel going to Asia. It's everybody else who went. It's the gospel going out through Paul's disciples, the people who met Jesus, who grew under his ministry. And then they go out, and they tell other people about Jesus. And then they go out, and they tell more people about Jesus. So the work that began with this little tiny work in Ephesus has worldwide impact. I can't get bogged down. I got to keep going. Verse 11. We're going to get through 41, so (laughs) hang on tight. (laughs) Here we go. Massive impact. Now we come to Paul pressing into the work greater and the impact that he has in Ephesus. Uh, Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them alright that's super weird right well yeah because it's a miracle it's not supposed to happen it, there's not like a super scientific explanation for how this happens that's the point of it how do these miracles with the handkerchief and the aprons happened well here's the first thing we're told and it's important for us to understand this order first thing we're told Paul didn't do these unusual miracles God did them Right? We're told that first thing. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul didn't say like, hey, I got some sweet moves, check these out. It was God saying, I'm going to do a work and I'm going to do this and accomplish this through Paul. So he uh, allows people to experience these miracles through Paul and he allows them to happen through these specific uh, vessels were told that they are handkerchiefs or aprons. These are probably just paul 's tent making like materials you know he 's got an apron on he 's building a tent and he 's got like a little bandana with like catching his sweat and somebody like takes it and runs off with it and then brings it to someone who 's sick, which is like why would you bring some sweaty thing to somebody super weird, but that was a part uh, kind of, of this ancient culture of believing in things being uh, having certain powers. And so this goes off, and people experience these miracles as a result. Now, this isn't foreign to to Scripture, and it isn't even foreign to to Christianity. We've seen this a couple times in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that there are people who lay in the streets hoping that Peter's shadow passes over them so that they might be healed we're also uh, experience a moment with Jesus where there is a woman who has experienced uh, a lifelong problem, a huge medical problem that she's been dealing with for her entire life. And Jesus ma- is making his way through a crowd. He's, he, he's like pressed in and everyone's pushing against him and he's making his way through a crowd. And this woman is of the belief that if she comes to Jesus and just grabs on to the hem of his garment, just the very bottom of it, then she will be healed. And as she does that, she is healed. And Jesus in the crowd, knowing that power had gone out of him, says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, really? Like everyone's touching you right now because we're trying to make our way through a crowd and everyone's trying to grab you. But it's this woman who experiences this miraculous healing. It's not just anybody who touches Jesus. It's this woman who experiences this. Now, God heals people in this instance, in these miraculous ways, to accommodate their beliefs, to help them grow in faith, to help them with their expectations, and in this culture, especially in the Ephesian culture, there was, uh, this, this is for the purpose of showing the power of God, the name of Jesus having authority, above uh, the magicians and sorcerers of this city. So there's some contrast that's, that's happening here, uh, specifically that the Lord seems to be working in. But what he's also doing is he's giving, like Jesus performed these miracles, not to be a miracle worker, but so that people might draw near to him to hear his message. So that he might proclaim to them the kingdom of God. And so the Lord does these things. These are not the normal expectation. That's why they're miracles. This isn't something that we are specifically saying like this should happen. You know, anytime that you take a sweat rag or, you know, an apron and try to like yeah somebody with it like that's that's not the normal expectation. Uh, this is something a description of what ha- has happened, <coughs> and so this is uh, an impressive work of God's power and authority. Paul's just doing his work. He's keeping his head down, building tents, and people are stealing his sweat rags. He, he doesn't really get a say in it. He's not calling people over and be like, hey, I got some sweat rags today if you, anybody needs healing. Come, come grab those. But it's the authority of Jesus that is being put on display. It's not Paul's authority. It's not Paul's ability. It's not Paul's uh, specific tools or his giftings. It's the power of Christ that's being put on display. That Jesus rescues and saves. That Jesus is the one who heals. Now, I'm sure all of you guys have experienced at some point um, whether in the form of some some sort of sweet meme on Facebook or, you know, Twitter, social media, <coughs> or whether you yourself are an aspiring DIYer. Uh, I'm sure some of you guys have experienced the phenomenon where you are seeing something and being inspired by it. Right? There's a whole... Uh, there's a whole category of people who do this. They troll like Pinterest, and they're trying to look for projects. And they're like, "Oh yeah, that's going to be good. I'm going to try that. I'm going to make that happen." Like I think it's a really great idea to build like these like mini self burger, like mini like burgers and like these cupcake tins. And like you end up doing like weird junk like that. You know, like oh, I want to make a Cookie Monster cookie, and here's like the, you know, how to do it. There's person's thing. Well, everyone's kind of seen those sorts of things. But then there's like a whole another side to that where people who try to attempt that and then it just goes wrong, right? These Pinterest fails, it's just like embarrassing. Uh, you know, you see like a DIY project and it's it, it looks like amazing from the original creator, but then like you go to try it and it's just like a blob and it looks horrible. It's just like, it's just a massive fail. And part of the reason is because when you approach those projects, the people who are usually making these projects, like they already have some, some level of skill. That You know, like maybe they have experience baking on their own, following the instructions, working through recipes, and then they just say like, oh, like here's, here's maybe like a life hack, here's how to like form this more quickly. I already know how to bake a little bit and I have some skills and like here's just maybe a, an easy way to do this or to use a tool that maybe a way you haven't thought of using it before. But then when you see something, a tool that may, oh, I don't have to go out and buy a specialized tool, then you think like, oh, well, I could do that. And, you know, you take like your very first baking experience and you try to do something that seems pretty easy but turns out to be pretty ambitious. And you don't really have the skill set, you don't have the experience to accomplish it. That's kind of what happens here in verse 13. Some of these guys who see what's happening with Paul, and they're like, oh, this guy Paul, he's like giving out sweat rags and aprons. They see what's happening here, and they think like, oh, I want, I want to give that a shot. Verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, the seven... uh, seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this so we've got this guy Sceva he's got some kids and they're like watching Paul and you know maybe they were there in the synagogue uh, seeing some of the things he's been doing and they're like oh look they kicked Paul out but like he's got this huge following over here at the school of Tyrannus seems like he's doing some cool stuff now people are getting healed through the sweat rag and apron thing Uh, maybe we should go handle this maybe we should you know see if we can build our own following now, here's some of the the problems with this. These guys are the sons of the high priests. Like they're supposed to be like in training to serve the Lord, uh, not in being caught up in kind of the really the magic and sorcery culture that surrounds Ephesus. But they are in a Gentile city. They see what's happening around them and the worship of these foreign gods. Ephesus was home to like tons of magicians and sorcerers and. Uh, these other religions that practice this, and so they thought, like, hey, like, seems like what Paul's doing is amazing. He's got these miracles. He's got this power, and it seems like they've got it right because they look at they look at his Pinterest page and they're like, okay, Paul, sweat rags, apron, in the name of Jesus. Okay, let's give this a shot. This is this is how they're thinking about this, and so they approach this, and. Th- it seems like they've got it right because they, they go through it and they say, I adjure you by Jesus. So that it's like, okay, and Paul did like the whole thing with Jesus. We got to do the thing with Jesus. Like, that's the way that it works. Uh, let's, let's, see, let's see if we can make this happen. It seems like they recognize that Jesus is the source of this power. And so they try to participate in this. But what they're doing here is they're trying to use the name of Jesus like this magic formula. And oftentimes, this is how we live life, right? We're like, I want to do this, and also, like, I better sprinkle in some Jesus, because that's the only way that, like, things get successful. The only things get, like, the only way I'm not going to get myself in trouble. I want to do this, or I want to make this decision, or I want to go here, or I want to buy this, and, like, also, like, in Jesus' name. Try to, like, pour a little bit of that in there to make sure, like, I'm recovered just in case. Better make sure that I add that. But the name of Jesus is only effective in those who belong to Jesus. If you don't have the experience with Jesus, if you don't know Jesus yourself, if you don't enjoy him personally, then you don't have that authority, you don't have that effectiveness. They didn't have the credentials to be interacting with demons in this matter. So they think like, "Oh, we're going to cast out some evil spirits and like seems like this is the, the formula, the way to do it." They try verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, "Jesus I know, and Paul, I recognized, but who are you?" The demon says, "I know Jesus." And I don't really know Paul, but I recognize him because he is connected to Jesus. The demon isn't fooled. The demon's like, oh, you guys got me. Great trick. You pulled out the Jesus card. Now I'm in trouble. He's not, the demon's not fooled. Look at that contrast. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. The demon recognizes that there's unity between Jesus and Paul. Like, these guys, yeah, they're together, but I have zero idea who are you. I'm like, well, I don't know why you're coming up in here thinking you're going to talk to me like you know Jesus. These men are foreigners to Christ. So instead of mastering this demon and, and having power and authority over the demon and casting it out, these guys are defeated and they end up naked, right? Verse 16. And the man in whom was the, e- whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Like they got embarrassed right there. Because they thought, like, oh, I'm going to come up in here. I got the credentials. I know. We know Jesus. We got the magic formula. And they end up, like, with all their clothes off, beaten down. Just embarrassed. Verse 17 And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So this impressed everybody like it put a contrast between those who were impersonators, those who were posing that they knew Jesus and those who actually knew Jesus, Paul, and those who followed Christ. The people with the authority of Jesus had power over evil spirits. The people with the authority of Christ had the ability to perform these miraculous healings. These people come to faith, Jesus is glorified. The church begins to grow. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers, so there's people who hear about this, they come into the family of God, they're like, what in the world? Jesus is the most powerful over all things. They come into the family of God. They are believers and they come confessing, verse 18, and divulging their practices. So all of a sudden, all these secret magicians and sorcerers are coming out, saying like, oh, you know, really, like, I'm also, like, I, have, I was dealing with that too. They're pulling out all of their stuff. We're told a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So these men demonstrate repentance and obedience. Once they come to faith, they see that Jesus has authority over all, and then they make... Uh, they make a choice to obey Christ. They say, if Jesus has authority over all, I don't need to be trying to seek authority of others uh, from another place, another source. And so what they do is they take their books, where that would be their, the source of their power, their sorcery, where they would have these things that they would seek knowledge and have these spells that they would try to say. They take these specific things that had a hold on them, the, the things that represent their old life, And they take them, and they burn their books. What they're doing is saying, I value Christ and his power and his authority more than going back to these things. Going back to these things that have a hold on me, that I've previously found comfort, that I've previously had security and safety in. They're making a choice to confess their need of God, and in need of his provision in their lives, by removing all other things that tempt them. There are other things in our lives that cause us to seek out salvation, to seek out safety, to seek out security. Being a Christian is hard. It's difficult because The life of a Christian, we're told, of Jesus, is denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. That means that you die to yourself every day. The things that you want, you say, not not me. I don't want the things that I want. I want to follow Jesus today. I want the things that he wants. So that means that the things that are not in his will, the things that don't go in his plan, we've got to get rid of those things. And we had to do that on the very first day where we decided to, to come to a relationship with Christ, to trust in Jesus for salvation. But too often we end up taking the things from that old life or those old experiences and we kind of just put them like in, you know, in a box for like when, when we want to go back to them. But Jesus says, you don't need those things. I'm going to hand you a cross and you can't carry anything else. We're going together step by step. If you've got things from your old life hanging around, you got to get rid of them. You got to burn you got to burn those books. If you got old old people hanging on to you, old friends, old relationships that are dragging you down, you've got to get rid of them. You've got to let them go. Because they will end up sucking you back in. Because in a moment you'll you'll see say, "Oh, I need to be I need to feel good i need to be satisfied i need someone to give me attention when really you should be receiving that and seeking that from christ it's only jesus who satisfies and so we cannot go to this we have to repent we've got to obey and it's going to be costly look how much it ends up being for these guys they burned these books, we're told they counted the value of them, and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, that, that's like a ton, ton of money. It's over a million dollars that they just end up lighting on fire here. But they recognize that being a disciple of Jesus involves letting go of what you treasure in order to enjoy the blessings that God wants to give you they clearly value Jesus more than anything else. And because of this, because they were obedient, because Paul continues to proclaim the gospel, verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the church begins to grow, people see Jesus, they value Jesus, and this begins to take hold of the city in a new way. And because of that, that also leads to some more problems, some more trouble Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So, Paul, he's led by the Holy Spirit. He wants to go to Jerusalem and also Rome. He's like, Look, I'm going to send. Timothy and Erastus before me to go prepare the way. They're going to go and get things in order uh, and minister to the churches that are there. It's a team effort that's happening here. And so these two men go ahead. And as he's making these plans, verse 23, (coughs) we find this. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So here again, the Christians, someone's mad again. For a man named Demetrius... A silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. It's kind of confusing uh, how he says that. There's a problem. Uh, a silversmith basically is this guy named Demetrius. He's not up to no good. He started making trouble in Paul's neighborhood and uh, He has this group of craftsmen who he has hired who work for him. They work on these silver shrines uh, that he sold. Now, these shrines are uh, these miniature replicas of the temple or also of the spot where this goddess Artemis uh, stood in this temple, and it would include kind of the altar area and this goddess Artemis. Uh, These were a part of their, uh, their, their cult. And so this guy, Demetrius, he starts stirring up the people he's like this 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 guy paul, I 'm trying to sell these silver statues, these idols of Artemis, and so he's causing some problems with the, with uh, with the business, and so he starts stirring up trouble now, this ends up escalating very quickly. The reason is is because As we said earlier, the temple of Artemis was in this city. And this city considered it to be the greatest in all of Asia, self-proclaimed. And this specific goddess uh, was one who protected the money of uh, people who deposited it into kind of their bank there. Um, This goddess was said to be the daughter of Zeus and Leto was associated with health and help of various kinds and was also worshipped because she was uh, over all supernatural powers so there's this idea of uh, health and help and then having power over supernatural powers this uh, goddess was also said to be a virgin who helped women in childbirth and then also someone who is a huntress armed with a bow slash the goddess of death. Like, it gets real confusing real quick. But there's one interesting insight that I think um, is is worth bringing out. There's a a Greek uh, geographer, philosopher, historian, this guy named Strabo. You can uh, read his material. But he wrote uh, about this goddess Artemis, and he wrote uh, about this region. And one thing that he said here is that he says that this goddess received... Uh, her name, Artemis, off of another word, Arteamus, which means safe and sound. And, and I think that sums up what they're trying to get from this goddess here. They're trying to make sure that they are safe and sound. They're looking for safety. They're looking for security. And so it makes sense when you say, oh, you know, you want to be around someone who's associated with with." Uh, With health and with help of various kinds, because you certainly need that safety. It's something you worry about your health and help of different sorts. Because the city was filled with magicians and sorcerers and those who practiced uh, these demonic arts, you would want to be connected to the one who was over these supernatural powers. You would need safety and security. In the ancient world, having a child could result in death much more easily than it could today. Not only for the child, but for, uh, for the mother. And so you would need safety and security. A huntress armed with a bow speaks of security and safety. The goddess of death. You want to be in charge of the person who's, who's in charge of death. You know, you can, you want to have a connection there. So it looks like what they're after really is protection, safety, security. And so we find this guy, Demetrius, he's angry because his livelihood is being threatened, but also the safety and security is being threatened. Here's here's what happens. Verse 25, These he gathered together, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. Right? Demetrius is looking for wider support. He gathers workmen from similar trades. He gets people from other fields. He's like, look, like we're, we're beginning to have a problem here. And he poses, uh, or he, he presents the problem to this group in two ways. First, as a financial threat. He says the implications of this Christian gospel spreading is that Our wealth is going to go away. You know that from this specific business, we have our wealth. He's convinced that his safety and security, that these men, their safety and security is in their financial situation. He's exposing the idols of money. He's exposing the the falsehood, the illusion of safety in financial security. Just because you have a lot of money right now doesn't mean anything. Everybody... Lost their money in the Great Depression. Boom. You were like super rich one day, and then you had nothing. What you think you have now, you'd be gone in an instant. Money doesn't bring safety and security. The gospel is being perceived as a threat here by Demetrius to their religious belief, to their practices, to their socio-economic life. And he's trying to present it that way. He tells them this, verse 26. And you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So Paul's effective gospel ministry resulted in Christians taking the gospel to all of Asia. Others have taken his message to places where Paul didn't go. Seems like Demetrius understands this. He gets it. He sees how popular the message is getting. He's, he even understands some of Paul's message. He's like, Paul's theology is right. Like, he's, he's recounts it correctly. Paul is saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And he's like, this, we make gods with our hands. Like, we do exactly what he's speaking against. That's our job, to craft these specific idols. And so the implications of the gospel, they flow directly at the idol-making of Demetrius and his craftsmen these guys who run the temple businesses. So it goes from this financial threat now into the next level. Verse 27, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. So not only a financial threat, but one of honor, fame, uh, hierarchy, validation. So, not only will their trade go away, but also, like, maybe the temple doesn't become a big thing. And that was like a huge point of identity for that city, for that culture. We have the temple of Artemis. People, it would create tons of tourism. People would come there on pilgrimages to worship. There's a lot that's at stake here, as he's saying. He says, if we let Paul continue, this is going to allow the actual temple to be counted as nothing. Now he goes on even further than that and he says if this continues even further he warns that the goddess Artemis may even be disposed from her magnificence she whom all asia and the world worship he's like if this goes to its ultimate climax even the goddess herself will be made to be nothing. Paul's line of thinking goes out that that far. That the gospel takes precedence and priority and has authority over all things and calls these idols false and nothing. Now, this was huge because there was a special bond between Artemis and the Ephesians. She's everywhere in the city, like tons of statues everywhere. The founder uh, and guide of the city is how they describe her, her pictures on the coins. On official documents, statues, uh, called the city's protector, um, and so this would have been really an, an outright like attack on their identity. Verse twenty-eight: When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" So they're enraged; they get all upset; they cry out in loyalty, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians." Verse twenty-nine. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So they're here. They start chanting this. They find two of the guys who were with Paul, uh, traveled with him. They grab them. They all rush into this theater that's there. Uh, The sound of their chanting brings more people to the site, and soon the city was filled with confusion. There were a bunch of people who just hear them, like, yelling these words, and they come over to check out, and they just start chanting with them. And they all make their way into uh, an amphitheater there that they would have uh, tri-monthly meetings at where they would discuss city business and ideas. Uh, There would be uh, other things that happen there throughout the week. But this spot is meant to hold these more formal discussions. Um... This area is, fits about like 25,000 people. I've been there. Here's a photo. It's gigantic. So they get dragged in, into that, and everyone's there screaming, uh, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, just chanting this. Everyone's confused. Here's what happens. Paul thinks this is a good idea to go in there and settle them down. So verse 30 when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So Paul wants to go in. He's prevented by two groups. First, uh, the disciples who uh, realize like this is not a good situation for you to go into. Uh, They see that his life is too valuable. They prevent him from going in. But he hears also from another group, the Asiarchs. Now, these people aren't Christians; they don't really have an interest. So, I, I believe that this is probably why Paul listened, because you know Paul's like not the type to resist danger. It's like you're certainly going to die. He's like, all right, let's go. Uh, but here to hear another warning, not just from the disciples, who maybe have been like a, maybe a little bit worried or cautious about him, and but to hear from another group, the Asiarchs. Uh, I believe that this is probably one of the reasons that he listened. The Asiarchs were an office who were in civic administration over uh, over the city. They were chosen from like the most wealthy people of the city. Uh, kind of the aristocratic class. Uh, and so they were the ones who reached out to him. He had some friends who were at this level of society. They reached out to him and they said, "This is this isn't a good idea for you to go in there. Now, I think this is just an interesting insight because this tells us that Paul builds a relationship, you know, not just with the blue-collar folks, not with the tent-making community, not just with the scholars, even with, like, the richest people. He's got friends in these high places who hear the gospel, and they're probably not Christians yet, but they're like, oh, we want to keep talking to you, and if you're dead, like, that's not going to be very helpful. They see what Paul's doing. They're watching out for him. And it seems that uh, Paul heeds their their warning because of this now 32 verse 32 now some cried out one thing some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together so there's not a unified cry all these people get pulled into the theater they're they're chanting away and some people are yelling different things and everyone nobody knows like why they're actually there there's further confusion. Verse thirty three. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Now the Jews, they don't want to be lumped in with the Christians, so they're like, let's send somebody out there to like make sure that the people of Ephesus know that like we're not the same group, like we're not the ones causing you problems. And so Alexander gets out there. He tries to like do like the um, the orators hand motions that would tell them to be quiet this is common in their culture. They recognize like this dude's a Jew. We don't like him. Here's what happens. Verse 34, when they recognize that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this basically backfires. The Jews get lumped in with the Christians. They find themselves facing this crowd in the same way. These people are still screaming for two hours. The same thing. Uh, Finally, the town clerk gets involved. Now, the town clerk isn't just, like, as lame as it sounds, the town clerk. Uh, he is one of the highest local officials in Ephesus. He had, uh, the, who would be the liaison between uh, Rome, and he was the one who had, had probably the greatest influence in the city. Here's what happens. He, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, verse 35, he said, men of Ephesus, who, who is there who does not know that the city of the ephesians is temple keeper of the great artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky seeing then that these things cannot be denied you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash so he quiets the crowd he affirms the local belief of the ephesians telling them like look like it's impossible to undermine like the worship of artemis you like this is like core to our city this is the city's identity you know we have this temple here it's dumb for you guys to even think that this guy is going to cause a problem he says, you don't need to, like, we have self-confidence as a city of who we are. Like, you don't need to cause this disturbance. He quiets them down. Now, we see that it's also for a greater reason than this, because uh, we get to verse 37. He says this, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls Let them bring charges against one another. So this town clerk he makes the observation like these guys aren't like sacrilegious or blaspheming uh the goddess there's no evidence of that <coughs> Now what would constitute sacrilege would be something like vandalism or robbing the temples which like they hadn't done that's you could say kind of whatever you wanted um but it would be the action that would put you into that territory and they haven't robbed these temples so there's nothing that they have as evidence to show that this has been done and basically the clerk knows that the crowd likely isn't going to believe this story they obviously believe that there has been this sacrilegious uh, effort by paul and and the christians they blaspheme the the goddess that they uh, all support but he is trying to get this thing just to settle down as quickly as possible. And so he gives them a direct route to handle the issue. He's like, the courts are open. Go to the courts if you, like, want to, like, sue them privately. Like, go do that. But, like, you don't have, like, a group thing here. Uh, beyond that, you couldn't bring charges in this broader context. Like, you had to do it in a specific legal context. So the public meeting wasn't, wasn't helpful anyways. Uh, and, and so he tells them this. If you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly They met in this thing three times a month. So he's like, let's just put it on the city agenda. Like, we'll talk about it in like a couple days. Put it off for a couple days, basically. But here's the main reason. This is is what he's really getting at. And this is why he's so forceful in his words. Verse 40. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Now, this is hugely ironic the city clerk claims that they could be charged with rioting because they don't really have a way to produce a reason for the riot. Most of the people are confused as to why they're there. Demetrius and some of his crew, like, are know why, but everybody else is just like there because, like, that's when like a crowd starts to gather. It just turns into like a mob scene. In a city charged with this sort of behavior, you couldn't riot. It had to be like very, uh, very proper in the city because they had freedom under Rome. And so a city that that had this type of behavior could lose uh, their freedom as a city. It could cause the city to uh, be disbanded and Rome would come in with like an iron fist and just crush it and make sure that it was tight and under their rule exactly how they wanted it to be. The city officials could be punished. This town clerk could be punished because he didn't keep it under control. The city overall could lose the entirety of its freedom. And so he has some incentive to like to knock this out. He says that we are in danger of being charged with rioting. It's a bit ironic because Demetrius' whole claim before is like we're we're in danger of Paul's teaching. And ultimately the town clerk comes and turns around, and he's like, Like, really, the real danger is like you guys started a riot for, for no reason. All the while, the whole point of this is that they want safety and security, and so they're inviting danger into their midst because they're seeking to protect that which will not ultimately give them safety and security. They want to be able to continue on with their false idols, but yet they lead themselves into greater danger by trying to defend that practice. Verse 41, And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We see that this is the beginning, the gospel, of changing this culture, this city, even into Asia. Paul, he has a three-year teaching ministry in Ephesus. It goes from the lowest class to the upper class it seeps into every, every sphere in the city. He takes advantage of his time there. The last time he was there, he, they said, stay with us. And he's like, I can't stay. I'll come back to you if the Lord opens a door for me. And then he starts off with three months. And he gives it as all for those three months. And then he gets kicked out. And then he finds another spot and the Lord opens it up. He's there for two years. In total, Paul spends three years in the city. Some of you guys have maybe been here for three years now. Some of you have been here for less. But don't think about your time here in our city as how short your time is. Oh, I can't really like do very much. You have time. The Lord's going to use you and the time that he gives you. If you make yourself available to him. But you have to know the source, the power. You can't be like the Pinterest poser wannabe trying to make your little project. You can't come in and try to live in this city with the spiritual oppression, try to make disciples here in this climate in this community or in any community unless you know Jesus yourself. You might be fooling other people. You might be fooling the people who are sitting next to you in the pews. But the spiritual realm isn't fooled and Jesus isn't fooled. He knows what's happening. He knows if you've got your books stored in another room. He knows if you've got the things from your previous life that you're unwilling to give up, he knows if you've got those hidden away. The only way that you're going to live successfully, the only way that you're going to have the authority and power that you need to serve Jesus faithfully is if you are connected to the source of that, to Jesus himself. Someone else can't be connected for you. You can't look and be inspired by someone and say, oh yeah, that seems nice, I'm going to do that. You won't be able to accomplish it. You have to put in the time getting to know jesus himself and he will make himself available to you in the fullness you're not going to get like a tiny bit give you everything he's got and so draw near to him and he will draw near to you let's pray lord we're thankful Thankful that you have given us a way to live for your glory in spite of who we are. We know that we come under-equipped. We know that we often don't have what we need and that we feel weak. But, Lord, you have said that you will be strong in our weakness And so, Lord, we're happy to come weak and broken. Would you change us and transform us? Not as we are near to other people who know you, but as you come into our lives and you change us directly and specifically. It's your power. It's you, yourself, that we need. And so, Lord, cause us to respond and worship as we see your work, that you died for us when we were your enemies, when we were sinners, when we were far from you. You gave us your life so that we might have a relationship with you. You gave us your life so that way we wouldn't have to seek safety and security and acceptance and validation elsewhere. You gave us all of your love and all of, us, all of your attention so that way we could have true safety and true security in you. Lord, show us those things that we need to get rid of. Lord, cause those things just to be burning a hole in our minds. Lord, bring us under your conviction so that we might come into a deeper, fuller, satisfying relationship with you. And Lord, we want to respond in thanksgiving, in praise, and in worship now. So Lord, lead us. We love you. Amen.